Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 160, Federico da Montefeltro, and bits getting cut off. E così ritorno su, lasci i colli nelle valli, tra due salici piangenti, io ritrovo la speranza di un amore che ormai fu. I know that I said we were all done with the Middle Ages, and that from now on, everything would be strictly post-1492 stuff. Well, I lied. I want to make room for one more character who I initially excluded, but as my research into the modern era and Italian wars continues, I found Urbino popping up more and more. And since I already done the research, why not do an episode on Federico da Montefeltro? But I'm really lying again. The real reason is that I have a slight compulsive disorder or something like that. And it really bugged me to finish the Middle Ages on episode 159 and start the modern age on 160. So as the famous song by Leslie Gore goes, it's my podcast and I'll talk about Federico da Montefeltro if I want to. Now, those of you with a deeper interest in Italian history will probably be already familiar with him. However, even if you aren't, you're likely to have seen his iconic image. If you search for him on the internet, you will see a painting in profile of a man with a very odd-looking red hat that looks like the top of a British postbox, with a tuft of fluffy black hair and, most recognisably, a very oddly shaped nose. The most famous image of him is at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence by artist Piero della Francesca. But it is not the only one. A characteristic of any image you see of him is that you will always see him in profile, with the left side of his face visible, looking to his right and to your left. Any image you see of him facing the other way is either a mirror image of the original or is simply wrong. This is because Federico da Montefeltro, ever since 1452, when he was 30 years old, had been missing his right eye and that bit of his nose. During a tournament in honour of Francesco Sforza, who you will remember had recently become Duke of Milan, a spear had penetrated Federico's helmet breaking off the bridge of his nose and piercing his right eye. Afterwards, he didn't want to try and cover up his deformation, and it was Federico himself who got Piero della Francesca and then other artists to depict him with his missing bit of nose, making him recognisable all over Italy in a time without Instagram accounts. He knew a bit about marketing, using not only artists, but also architects to continue the work of his predecessors to transform the Duchy of Urbino from a backwater town to one of the capitals of the Renaissance. So, let's take a step back in time before Federico to take a look at how the House of Montefeltro rose to prominence. 
the Montefeltro first rose to prominence between the 12th and 13th centuries, starting off with the castle of Monte Copiolo, a small town in the modern-day province of Rimini in the Emilia-Romagna region. They then took over the county of Montefeltro, which no longer exists but extended into Emilia-Romagna, Marche, the Republic of San Marino and part of Tuscany. They owed their fortune to the close ties with the Hohenstaufen emperors, particularly Frederick Barbarossa and Frederick II. With the fall of the Hohenstaufen, the Montefeltro moved closer to the popes, their neighbours to the southwest, and from then on the power of the dynasty was inversely proportional to that of the occupants of the throne of St. Peter. Indeed, after Boncone da Montefeltro took over as Count of Urbino in 1234, they would occasionally lose control to the Papal States for varying periods. It was the infamous Bonifacio VIII who granted the family the Vicariato, which made them Papal representatives for Montefeltro. This occurred in the late 13th century during the reign of a man who can be seen as the first real condottiero of the Montefeltro, Guido the Elder. You will remember that a condottiero was a military leader who would offer their services to various entities through a contract known as condotta. The absence of the papacy moved to Avignon in the 14th century allowed the Montefeltro more room for manoeuvre and it was in the latter part of that century, in 1375, that the county of Urbino was definitively taken back by Antonio II de Montefeltro. With the start of the 1400s, we can bring our boy Federico back in. His early biography has some grey spots. Suffice it to say, he was born in 1422, but both his father and mother are uncertain. He was eventually legitimised by Pope Martin V and recognised as the son of Guidantonio da Montefeltro, Count of Urbino. The little tyke was sent away from court in 1427 when his father and new wife had a legitimate heir, Odantonio. Federico had a pretty decent time, however, first in a monastery, then in Venice, then in Mantua at the school of the renowned Vittorio da Feltre, to whom Federico owed his later love for literature and the rare and precious books he would collect. It was also in this period that he was knighted by Holy Roman Emperor Sigmund of Luxembourg. Federico returned to Urbino at the ripe old age of 15 to marry the 20-year-old Gentile Brancaleone, which made him a minor landowner in his own right. The following year, at the age of 16, he received his first command of 800 men in the army of the condottiero Niccolò Piccinino, who was fighting for the Duke of Milan, Filippo Maria Visconti, against Francesco Sforza. In 1440, Federico would have been on the losing side in the Battle of Anghieri, in which the Duchy of Milan lost to a coalition of Florence, Venice and the Papal States. The battle was depicted in a lost work by Leonardo da Vinci and then replicated by Rubens. I say Federico would have been on the losing side of this battle. You remember that we said he was very good at marketing his image. Well, 
Federico would make sure that if the battle was not going his way, he would abandon the field. After all, you can't be said to have lost a battle if you weren't there. It was in the following year, 1441, that he really started to make a name for himself as a military leader. Indeed, early in that year, he was caught in an ambush by Sigismondo Malatesta, the arch-enemies of the Montefeltro, but managed to escape. Then, in October of the same year, he managed to take the formidable fortress of San Leo near San Marino. He continued his activity over the next few years, setting up what would become a fighting company, both in the military and business term. A good condottiero indeed was a valiant and able military leader, but also a shrewd businessman. The contracts, the condotte, were complete documents that included not only prices, dates and objectives, but also logistics, machine and equipment rental, and so on. One thing that was constant in the Montefeltro activities over the next few months was that whatever military operation he got into, he would often come up against the old enemies of his house, the Malatesta of Rimini. Then, in 1443 and 1444, everything changed drastically. In 1443, the Count of Urbino, the younger stepbrother of Federico, Odantonio, managed to get Pope Eugene IV to make him a duke. Now, a pope or king does not make you a duke out of the goodness of his heart. They usually want something in return, and most of the time, it's a nice, big pile of cold, hard cash. Add to this the cost of constant fighting, and the citizens of the brand new Duchy of Urbino had quite a heavy weight of taxation on their heads to get them grumbling at the new duke. Add to this that he was surrounding himself with counsellors close to Sigismondo Malatest of Rimini, mortal enemy in particular of Federico and of the Urbino elite, and you're cooking up a recipe for disaster. Tensions continue to rise until the night between the 22nd and 23rd of July, 1444. It was a hot and muggy summer night in Urbino. Not dark and stormy, unfortunately. Just after midnight, a band of around a dozen conspirators managed to enter the Duke's palace and with the help of a large wooden beam used as a battering ram, managed to enter Odantonio's personal chambers. The first of all were his trusted counsellors and bodyguards, Manfredo dei P and Tommaso di Manfredo. The first was cut down as he tried to defend himself with a sword, while the second dragged from under a bed and stabbed repeatedly. Hearing the noise, the duke tried to hide, but was soon found. It is said that he then fell to his knees in front of a crucifix and begged for mercy. None was forthcoming. A heavy blow to the head with an axe was all it took to put an end to the reign of Odantonio da Montefeltro, first duke of Urbino. This is where, according to some chroniclers, such as future Pope Pius II, Andrea Piccolomini, the story takes a rather macabre turn. You see, it seems the young duke, 17 at the time of his death, led a rather dissolute life of debauchery. 
It is not clear how much of it is true, and how much can be attributed to the Duke himself rather than his counsellors. For example, one of the conspirators may have had a grudge against Councillor Manfredo de Pi, who supposedly raped the conspirator's wife. The result of the reputation, whether earned or not, was reportedly that the three bodies were thrown out of the window and dragged into the square. The Duke at this point may or may not have had his penis cut off and stuffed into his mouth. Another element which is not clear is the role of Federico da Montefeltro. He seems to have been in Pizarro at the time, about 35 kilometers away, a 45-minute drive today, but back then a five-hour trip. That meant that a messenger leaving shortly after the assassination would have reached Federico around 5 or 6 a.m. and he would have managed to get to Urbino around 10 or 11 at the very earliest. Well, who should come waltzing up to the walls of Urbino with his army ready just after dawn on the 23rd of July? Federico da Montefeltro. Add to this that although some conspirators were punished, some got off lightly, and one in particular, Andrea de Paltroni, the assassinated Duke's Chancellor, rose high in the administration of Federico. After a short negotiation with the city officials, he entered Urbino and took control of the duchy. Opposition to his reign would continue around the line of old legitimacy, which included, for example, his half-sisters Veva da Montefeltro and the mother of Odantonio, Vittoria Colonna, and was supported by the Malatesta of Rimini, but by the 1450s things were looking rather stable for the new regime. In that same decade, Federico became chummy with King Ferrante of Naples, a friendship which would last for the rest of their lives. One thing that did not change was the mortal fight versus Sigismondo Malatesta. This situation came to a head in the early 1460s, it was in this period that the Malatesta started to step on the toes of Pope Pius II by taking cities around the March of Ancona, part of the Papal States. The Pope called a special consistorium, which was supposed to deal with various issues, but was very much about bashing the Malatesta. Sigismondo was called a blaspheming tyrant of the deep, and even the church he had built, known today as the Malatesta Temple, Tempio Malatestiano did not escape criticism being called a pagan temple rather than a Christian church. Conflict ensued and the opportunity for Federico da Montefeltro was golden. He met and defeated Sigismondo Malatesta at the Battle of the Cesano River in 1462 which marked the beginning of the end of the House of Rimini and the consolidation of the Duchy of Urbino in central Italy. Two years later, when Pope Pius II gave way to the Venetian Paul II, Federico was made gonfaloniere of the Holy See, sealing his close ties with the Papal States. His military activity continued in the 1460s, for example, after the death of Duke Francesco Sforza of Milan, he was hired by his successor, Galeazzo Maria, and in 1467 he would have fought against another great condottiero, the Bergamo-born Bartolomeo Colleoni, he of the insignia with the three sets of testicles, at the Battle of the Riccardina in 1667. 
In that battle, Corleone fought for Venice and Montefeltro for Florence, with no real certain outcome. It was one of the first battles in Italian history in which cannons were used not as siege equipment, but against troops on the field. However, it was not all fighty-fighty, booming cannons and stabby-stabby. It was in particular in the 1460s that Montefeltro started to invest heavily in art, architecture and building up an impressive personal library that all made Urbino into the jewel of the Renaissance that it is today and would earn Federico the moniker La Luce dell'Italia, the light of Italy. As far as family was concerned, in 1470 he married one of his daughters, Elisabetta, to Roberto Malatesta, putting an uneasy pause on the rivalry between the families. Elisabetta was one of eight legitimate daughters in a row, without considering the potential dozens of illegitimate children. Federico finally had a son, Guidobaldo, two years later, but sadly, it was also the last child his beloved second wife, Battista Sforza, would give him as she died the same year, after an entire marriage spent constantly pregnant. Going back to the painting by Piero della Francesca we spoke of at the beginning, if you see the whole thing online, or even better at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, you will see it is the right half of a larger painting that also includes Battista with husband and wife looking at each other. Federico would continue to visit her tomb every week until his death. The year 1471 saw the election of Francesco della Rovere as Pope Sixtus IV, and a sort of triple entente cordiale was born between Urbino, the papacy and the Kingdom of Naples, which would eventually be turned on the Florence of Lorenzo de' Medici but not before Federico was hired by Lorenzo to subdue the rebellion in Volterra, which, which then led to the notorious sack for which Lorenzo was blamed. Federico's spin doctors later made it out that he was seen trying to stop the carnage, but other sources have him totally ignoring it, enthralled by the finding of a rare version of the Bible and a beautiful lectern that ended up in his private collection. 1474 was a really good year for international recognition. First of all, he was finally recognized as Duke by the Pope, the delay contributing to the suspicions surrounding his role in the assassination of his stepbrother, Odantonio. That same year, the King of England, Edward IV, admitted him to the prestigious Order of the Garter and the King of Naples to that of the Ermine. A year later, he would also become a member of the Papal Order of the Golden Rose. As 1478 came along, Federico supported Pope Sixtus IV and his nephew, Girolamo Riario, in the infamous Pazzi conspiracy, which killed Giuliano de' Medici and wounded Lorenzo. Federico also supported the ensuing War of the Pazzi, but it seems that he also may have had a hand in helping the diplomatic efforts of Lorenzo the Magnificent to get Naples out of the war. After the Pazzi War, the Pope and Naples would turn on each other and Federico managed to delicately play both sides and end up getting paid by both. Then the 1480s came along and the War of Ferrara 
or the Salt War. You will remember that Venice had its eyes on the Duchy of Ferrara, which, among other things, was threatening the Most Serene Republic's salt monopoly. Egged on by the Pope's nephew, Girolamo Riario, war broke out, but Florence, Milan and Naples came out, came to Ferrara's aid. Federico da Montefeltro had tried to dissuade Girolamo Riario from the endeavour, but he would not listen to reason. Perhaps Federico simply understood that the other powers were ready to intervene, or maybe he had the proverbial bad feeling about the situation. It was not on the battlefield or under an assassin's blade that the Duke of Montefeltro fell, but from a simple case of malaria from the swamp-ridden Romagna area. The very same day, Roberto Malatesta, one of the last remaining descendants of the arch-enemy of the Montefeltro, the Malatesta, also died. Federico's precious library would eventually become the basis for the Apostolic Library, the impressive collection jealously guarded by the Vatican to this day. I also, of course, recommend visiting the beautiful city of Urbino to see more of his legacy firsthand. The duchy would continue, not always under the Montefeltro, until it was absorbed into the Papal States in 1625, long after Federico da Montefeltro, the light of Italy, had ceased to shine. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Thanks in particular to my lovely, lovely Patreon supporters. Starting with the first half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and they are Alison, Amanda, Anthony, Silane, Cindy, David, Dean, Demetrio, Dennis, Dominique, Emily, Eric, Federica, Francesco, Gabriel, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jacob, Jeff, Jeffrey, and John W. And of course, the tippy top, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligiri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, David L, Renat, David, JW, Sen, David A, Karen, Peter, Helenka, and Kaiserbosch. Thank you, thank you, one and all. Remember, if you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can see our website. And if you want, go to the support page where you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content or just make a one-off donation on PayPal. We thank you very much if you do so. Once again, thank you very much for listening, dear listener. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? 
At Sentieri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.